I am here with Angela Skirtu today. Thank you so much, Angela, for being here. Um, Angela is a marriage and family therapist, as well as an ASEC certified uh, sex therapist. And we're very lucky to have Angela here to tell us a little bit about what she does. So um, do you want to give us a little bit of background on your education and training and what you do and how you got where you are today? Yeah, sure. That's a loaded question. Well, no, yeah, it's fine. I mean, I don't know if it's that loaded. I know what I did. <laughs> so like um, for training, I went to the University of Hawaii for my bachelor's in psychology. And then I went to the University of Oregon for my master's in counseling, family and human services. Then in addition to that, be to become an ASEC certified sex therapist, I had to, it's kind of like getting a second master's, but you do two years of continuing education credits and supervision to get your, like, I'd say it's very similar to getting a license as a marriage and family therapist. Basically you have a supervisor and you get a bunch of hours and training. And then, um, that's, that's at least the training that brought me to who I am today. And then as far as I think you asked about like what I do well, uh, couples and sex therapy is my bread and butter for sure. So basically I just, um, help couples be happier and, help couples start having sex again, to be fair, <laughs> you know, like sexless marriages or people who are, I don't know, struggling, people who are cheating on each other. It's a whole gamut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's so important, you know, just coming from the OBGYN realm, there's a lot of sexless marriages out there and people don't know who to turn to or who to talk to about it um, or that there's anything that can be done. So thank goodness for people yeah. like you. Welcome to Intimacy Unmuted, the podcast that discusses intimacy, women's health, midlife and menopause unapologetically. Whether it is low libido, painful sex, or it's just not what you want sex to be, we will talk about it here. Today's podcast focuses on sex and marriage. Learn more about how to improve your sex life, avoid or improve a sexless marriage, and communication styles that may be effective for your relationship. You're supposed to be having sex in marriage, I think. I think that's yeah, the expectation. Yeah, yeah. But there's not a lot of education out there about like, well, what do you do to keep that sex life and that spark strong for the long right. run? Right. You know? So people have this honeymoon period in the beginning that's really fun and exciting but then after that like they often are, are unsure like what's the work you know how do you right. really make this happen and keep it going you know right so that kind of reminds me I don't know if you follow Kelly Casperson she's a urologist and she always says that sex is the one thing that we're all expected to be expert at yet we get no training and no education on it so I'm like, yeah, that, that pretty that's, much sums it up. That's about true. Yeah. There's a lot of trial by fire training, you know, where you're getting in yeah. there and having sex with your partner. But I think that's the big, I think the big challenge is people are doing things, but they're not talking and they're not discussing what they're interested in or what they like, or I don't know, even, you know, dirty fantasies, wild fantasies, interests, you know? And so they kind of just, they start having sex and it's so fun in the beginning because you don't really have to think much about it. You know, there's that honeymoon excitement and everybody's got euphoria. But then after a while, that same kind of sex gets dull. <laughs> people right. feel like they fall in these routines and you can only stay in that routine for so long before people are just like, whatever, I've got shit to do and I have work, you know? <laughs> and I think that's what's bringing to that. Yeah. So, so how do you approach that couple with the sexless marriage? How do you tell them to like, how do you get that spark ignited again? 
well, I have to figure out what's going on, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, as a, a doctor that you've got to look at some medical stuff first to see if there's anything going on, like pain during intercourse, for example, or there's erectile issues or um, even, you know, I mean, I look at, I definitely look, do a biopsychosocial model where I'm looking at like all of the factors. So biologically, I want to make sure everybody's in order and doing well. And I might send them to a doctor like you or to mm-hmm. um, a urologist, and then, but then I'm also looking at psychologically what's going on for them too, right? So like, are they, are they doing okay? Are they struggling with depression? You know, like this last year and a half, it's kind of been an apocalypse and everybody's yeah. got feelings around that. And so as a result, there's been, you know, like when people are really stressed or they're really anxious and depressed, like it, it can be very hard to have sex be your priority, you know, like actually this is kind of an interesting story, but in the heart of the pandemic, when everybody was locked down, I went down to half practice. I only had about half of my client caseload. And this was a really weird time for me because um, like, I've always had a job where people were packed out the door. They couldn't wait to come talk about their sex lives. And so it was a period where sex suddenly felt kind of irrelevant to people, you know, right. It right. Did, there was, there were bigger fish to fry. People were scared. Right. They didn't even know if they were going to have their jobs. Right. Right. And so it's interesting because then after that three month period, then it was like the floodgates open and everybody was like, we need to figure this out. Our sex life is terrible. And like, it's like, it fueled everybody speeded into like, okay, we need to fix our marriage or we need a divorce. I can't live like this, or I can't live in this house anymore. And it's like all this change occurred. But so that's something I know I'm going back to the original question. Of, oh, that's okay. I'm looking at psychological pieces of things, but then also biopsychosocial. I look at like, how is a couple interacting? Do they like each other? Are they having fun with each other? Or is there a lot of deep seated resentment that's kind of preventing them from wanting to be sexual? And then of course, you've got to look at spiritual, like what are their cultural values? What are things they believe about themselves? Whether, you know, like this one is an interesting one, but moms, there's a cultural belief for some moms that once you become a mom, you can't be a sexual person anymore. Right. And so right. when, when you have something like that, I might need to delve into the idea that like, well, actually, no, there are moms that can be sexual, but what's your version of that? Or what does it mean to be sexual for you? Right, right. I've definitely seen that in my practice. So I'm, you know, I'm curious how you approach that um, because I have seen women say now that I've had kids, like I just, I shouldn't be that, you know, you, you, so they, they sort of feel like you can either be one or the other. So how do you work? How do you work to change these sort of deep seated beliefs? Well, I'm curious, what do you tell them first? Like when they bring it up in your session, like, what do you, what do you say to them? Yeah, well, I usually do. I usually talk a little bit about how sex is normal and it's a part of, you know, a good relationship and it's okay to be a sexual person and a mother. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I feel like I I definitely sort of give them sort of a pass that this is okay. And so that they know it's okay. But I still feel like sometimes, you know, just telling somebody that this is okay, that you can be both, Mm -hmm. isn't going to change those those core feelings about it. So I don't know. That's kind of what I tell them. Well, so what I'll do is I'll launch into some, like, I want to know what they mean by like, what is a sexual person? Because Mm -hmm. I've learned that, there can even, that's loaded in itself. The idea that I'm a sexual person or I'm not a sexual person. Sometimes people will think, you know, does a sexual person mean I'm a porn star or I'm a stripper, for example, or is a sexual person like 
Madonna, the actual singer, you know, not like Madonna, like the Mary from like Catholic (laughs) tradition. Although like some people have that belief, like that, you know, the idea that once you become a mother, like you become that kind of a Madonna where you're supposed to be this holy person or like, you can't think about these sexual (laughs) things. Right. And so I, I really look at the meaning behind what does it mean to be a sexual person to them? And sometimes it, it feels bigger than what sexual actually is. Like if you look at real people, you know, not porn stars, right. um, sexual can just be that you're a little flirty or you say sexy things to your partner. Like you can have privacy. You can be a sexually private person, for example. Um, you can be interested, but like touch in your own way. So like, it's interesting, but I think a lot about how porn kind of gives these visuals of like women just being very loud and very like, ah, I'm just in this. Right. Me. I guess that's not even looking like a porn star, but that's my <laughs> visual representation, I suppose. But like what it will like, okay. So it's like, it's unlocking and unraveling some of those ideas of this is what it means to be a sexual person, but then coming mm-hmm. up with their own new ideas as um usually it's with women too of like what what does it mean for you to be a sexual person and is it okay for you to have um like is it okay to be quiet in the bedroom and but still kind of show your joy and how do you show that a joy or that desire is how do you are you more passive or are you more active in the way are there ways that you're actively showing interest but he's not noticing for example right um, so i just unravel beliefs around that um i also ask questions like, um, what are things, what, like, when was the last time you liked sex? When can you remember when it was a fun and enjoyable time? And then I might dissect that with a couple too, just exploring, like, what was it about that, that made it sexy? What was fun? Mm-hmm. And inevitably everybody says, well, it was before kids when we had right. enough time and we could relax. And so, but like, even that story is I can take things from those stories, right. Of like, mm-hmm. okay, so you tend to feel more sexual when you don't have other people around, including children, correct? You know, it's like, yeah, I'm feeling like I have alone time. So that might be a launch point to have couples like um, set aside days during during the month where they go off together. Like they actually mm-hmm. take off, but they're in their home, right? Mm-hmm. Or like it might mean, okay, well, maybe you guys need to do some like time away, get a getaway. Like, cause the other part is they had longer time, but they were bored more, right? Well, okay, right. maybe we need to set up situations where you can be bored together for a longer period of time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I learned a lot from those stories. Yeah. And what do you find that most people tell you? Like when you ask those questions, is it just run the gamut or most, or what do most women say when they're like, well, the mother is different from the sexual person or how do you find that patients define who they are sexually? Like, is there a theme underlying theme or everybody's different? I'd say the underlying theme is women haven't been given permission to be sexual. So they don't, they really struggle with the questions and the identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I mean, it's interesting, but I, I actually, for my podcast, interviewed this um, Jana Denton House, which, and what we talked about was how, wanting to want sex again. How do you mm-hmm. want sex in a way that feels good for you alone? And um, one of the things she suggests is women kind of take a break from cultural sexual messaging. So like anything that you, like, don't watch anything sexual, don't try to watch any porn, don't read anything, but just kind of like reset your system a little bit. Mm-hmm. And after that two week period, think a lot about like, well, what feels good just for me? Like if it's a certain kind of touch that I give or receive, what, 
what feels good when I'm doing, when I just choose this for myself. And sometimes what I might do, so there's an actual skill that I teach called Sensate Focus, and that was created by Dr. Masters and uh, Virginia Johnson. And basically it's a touch, it's a touch exercise that is meant to be slowing people down. Um, and it's not about sex. It's actually more about finding pleasure and uh, experiencing your nerve endings in a new way, but exploring what, what like sensuality looks like. And so I might get couples doing a version of that to refine touch for themselves and redefine like, oh, okay, this can be kind of sexy for myself. And some of my couples will take sensate focus and just like continue that for the rest of their sex lives because it's it's right. a really it's like a massage slowing down intimate connection that people kind of miss they kind of miss yeah. in their sex lives yeah you know I, I totally agree with the the culture how our culture tells women how they should be sexual and I feel like I spend a lot of time in my practice <clears throat> you know diffusing or debunking myths you know, like my, my biggest pet peeve, I think, is when you see in the movies a couple having sex and they both come together at the same time and then they roll off each other and everybody's happy. And, you know, and, and that they, they come from vaginal penetration instead of clitoral stimulation. And I've seen this over and over again in my practice. I, I've had women come in and say, you know, well, I can't, I can't reach orgasm. So then once you like, okay, well, what kind of orgasm, penetration, clitoral stimulation, and it turns out they can reach orgasm just fine clitorally but they have no idea that some women and a good percentage of women just cannot reach orgasm from vaginal penetration um, or their partner you know we talk about how women you know what what we learn from culture but men learn that too so their partner will say well why can't you orgasm from vaginal penetration what's wrong with you or maybe their partner thinks what's wrong with me I can't get you to reach orgasm from vaginal penetration when maybe it's, you know, it's just not going to work that way. So I think I, I love what, what you said about your guest on your podcast that we need to like, just walk away from these norms that we think, you know, we, we have this idea of what we think we need to be like. Yeah. Just to add to that, like not only walking away, but relearning and honoring, this is the way I experience sexuality and that's okay. Like I actually, as you were talking, I thought of like a couple of themes. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. one that women repeat to me is um, it takes clitoral stimulation and they'll feel bad about this. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, it takes me at least 20 minutes at least. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, sometimes it just takes too long. And I like, and what's interesting to me is I'm like, that's a normal amount of time. Like, right. of course it takes 20 minutes. Like <laughs> if you think about how women kind of get aroused and into the moment, like, so those TV shows show people spontaneously just feeling desire and going for it and they're right. and ripping each other's clothes off. And yeah, they come, but they also come in like five minutes or less. Yeah. Like it's yeah. a short segment, but most women Actually, I should say all to be fair, like we need to warm up. We need to right. make out. We need to touch. We need to kiss. We may go to the sexual table, not feeling fully aroused at all. We might mm-hmm. just be like, okay, maybe, maybe we'll get something in here and let's see what happens. You know, something in something in my vagina tonight. We'll right. See right. So it's like, you can have arousal that builds and right. that's something that's not taught is that you don't always have this magical desire that's just like, oh my God, I have to have sex right now. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, okay, maybe we can do something, but let's build some heat mm-hmm. and warmth between each other. And that ability to build that heat and warmth over time then allows them 
to then become aroused and then mm -hmm. feel desire. So desire can be something that happens after making a conscious decision. Yes. What a lot, a lot of women don't realize is that about 70% of women are responsive desire. This, this desire yeah. type I'm describing is a desire type that most women experience that need to be built in. And so because their male counterparts or even them believe that this is, it's supposed to be fast and quick, Sometimes their guys are starting things too quickly. Sometimes they're penetrating and even causing pain in situations because the woman hasn't opened up and become erect. Like, so that's another thing. When women become erect, we have right. um, uh, penile tissue inside our vaginas. And if we're warmed up and uh, excited, then our vaginal canal opens up and is able to take in that penis in a more positive, comfy way. Whereas if you kind of are doing like two or three minutes of kissing and touching, and then he goes in, it's like, uh, I'm not ready. Or, I mean, I'm not saying that people can't move into readiness through that, but like mm -hmm. that chronic way of having sex very quickly can mm -hmm. actually cause pain for women. And that's right. like that pain thing, going back to your desire question from like forever ago, <laughs> like nobody desires pain during intercourse right. consensually, right? So like, unless I say it non-consensually because some people like kink and BDSM stuff, right. that's fine. Right. They're choosing that consensually. You yeah. trying to have sex and penetration being painful is a non-consensual right. pain. Right, right. And then they wonder why they have low libido, you know? So so sometimes I'll see women who come in and they're, they're their chief complaint, their, their main thing is the low libido. Well, they didn't have enough foreplay and sex was painful. So yeah. really that's just that. good judgment, right? <laughs> like if sex is painful, you don't want to do it. So of course it's going to affect your libido. Um, so yeah, that I, absolutely. I yeah. That a lot. You have sex when you're in pain. I always think of like, it's like if every time, so I, I always think of a stove top. So like put your hand, if you ever, somebody kind of, I hope somebody never did this, but like, if you just put your hand <laughs> near a stove top, you naturally want to recoil from that because right. you're afraid of getting burned. Well, that's how right. the gender works over time. Yeah. It's like every yeah. time it's had pain, it wants to recoil because it's been burned a few times. It's like, now right. screw right. sex. You can go fuck yourself. Literally. I love your visuals, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I know you told me you're a visual person, but I really like that. So yeah, I'm going to have to like keep that and, and use that. So yeah. Yeah. I'm very visual. My mother is deaf. And so like, as a result, my, all of my expressions are very big and over dramatic, but I, I like them. That's how I learned myself. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit. I know we talked about this in the past, but tell me a little bit about how you, how you manage low libido with couples. Like, are there certain things that you tell them or you know, tips and tricks to kind of spice things up? Yeah. So for one of the things that I do actually comes from Metz and McCarthy's The Good Enough Sex Model. So they, they mm -hmm. have, I think it's 12 principles for healthy sexuality. And the first principle is for couples to like, it says eroticism is an intentional feature and it's the responsibility of each partner. Mm -hmm. And when you break down, so like what I'll do is I'll go through that good enough sex model with couples principle by principle, but I'll like delve mm -hmm. into what it means for them. And what I love about that particular principle is that it is, it's right away challenging couples to be erotic intentionally. Like, what are you going to do to make this a priority and actually put your brain in an erotic space? Now, the interesting thing is um, every time that particular principle comes up with a couple, they'll say, what's eroticism? Right, right. Because <laughs> I think it means the something different to everybody. <laughs> exactly. Eroticism is different for everybody. 
And also couples don't realize they need to be intentional about it, that there needs mm -hmm. to be effort put into flirting, foreplay, mm -hmm. um, sex. There's this great book called Sex Begins in the Kitchen. I can't remember the author, but I'm sure we can look that up too. But basically, like, what are you doing to build up intensity and desire and eroticism, even in your day-to-day -day life? Right. The biggest challenge for my couples with libido is they've compartmentalized sex. <laughs> so there's basically this, sex can happen in this way, this shape, this form, in this small place, right? So it can only happen in the bedroom. It can only happen after the children are asleep. Um, and we have a half an hour window, which isn't conducive for good sex anyway, right. but like you can have a good quickie in that time, but like you want more than just some good quickies. Right. So one of the things I need to teach people though, is like that sex needs to be incorporated to some degree in day-to-day -day life. And when I talk about sex, I don't just mean like fucking in the countertop, right? Like I'm talking right. about intimacy, desire, flirting, romance, being sweet, mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things I'll get them thinking about in terms of female desire is basically, I call it the ah feeling. And so that's endearment, essentially, like people need to feel kind of close and connected sometimes before they're going to move into some of those sexually desire spaces. So we'll talk a little bit about, okay, well, what kinds of things make you feel endeared to your partner? Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me for, for women in particular is it's often associated with things like he took something off her plate in terms of like rolls around the house or mm -hmm. one guy I, I remember sh sh there was this couple I had where the one guy said to his wife he's like hey why don't you go upstairs and take a bath I've got the kids like go just take care of yourself and relax for a little bit and that was one of her oh <laughs> like he wants me to take care of myself right so, like working with a couple I'm teaching guys to look for those awe moments like those little endearment moments because that's a little more true to female desire and sexuality mm -hmm. or at least the baseline that we need to get into that space but then when I'm working with females I'm trying to get them thinking about all right beyond like just feeling like a call it like an, an environment of warmth right like mm -hmm. we want to create that environment of warmth there still needs to be a challenge to like, how do they put their brain in that desire space? Like what are things that when they feel relaxed, when they do feel that connection to their partner that help them amp up to the mm -hmm. next level so that it's like, okay, well now I'm feeling a little sexy. Now I'm feeling a little excited about something. Mm -hmm. And it all goes back to that principle of we need to be intentionally erotic as couples and not just in the one 30 minute period when we're right. planning to have sex, but like, maybe throughout the day, I've got my phone here. So maybe you, I'm interested. You want to do something? I don't know. What do you want to do? Like do a little sexting, um, come to each other and give each other a kiss somewhere. That's a little different, but still, I guess, in front of the children appropriate. So like you can kiss each other on your ears or your neck, or you can come up behind somebody and give them a sexy hug. And that's not going to be inappropriate in front of children. Right. Because you have to think about that. How do you incorporate flirting and eroticism when there are children present? Because I think that is the big challenge point for a lot of my couples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's definitely hard. But I do think, you know, when kids are around, I think it's important to, to set the example and show that you love each other. So, you know, maybe that's hard for some couples, but that kiss or touch or or whatever, you know, I think that. I think that's a good thing, but you know, everybody's different and everybody's comfort level is different with, you know, touching in front of children and whatnot. And I don't mean like really overtly sexual touching. Um, Not respectful, but, but a little romantic, right? You know? Right, right. 
I think yeah. what's going on there is that like people people learn from their own parents, right? So you right. your parents modeled what affection should or shouldn't look like. Right. And as a result, if you were raised in a household where people were just never touching each other, then yeah. as an adult, what I'll find is couples struggle. They they bring the same issues from their parents into their own marriages, mm -hmm. right? So my yeah. my suggestion to those people is always like you're teaching your kids right now what it means to be married and to have a romantic right. life. And mm -hmm. if you don't model some of that through your behavior, then they're going to learn to struggle in sex the same way you are now. Right. That's a really, really good point. So that kind of reminds me, you know, talking about human touch and how some people need human touch. Some people are want human touch less. Um, I'm I you know, the book, Gary Chapman, The Love Languages. Yes, I do. Yeah. So I recommend that to my patients sometimes. And what I found just, and there's, you know, re, no research to support this, but anecdotally, what I see a lot is the male partner, his love language will be touch and the female partner's love language will not be touch, it'll be something else. So I'm just curious if you've seen that more in your clients, or if you have them do the love languages in the first place. Yeah, so I will teach them, but I do teach them a little different than his book. I think yeah. all love languages are important, all five. We need mm -hmm. all five to be able to give and receive all of them. And in fact, in my work, and again, this is more anecdotal, but in my work, when people aren't getting all five to some degree, the one they the, the one they want the most is the ones they're not getting, right? And so I mm -hmm. see it more as a hierarchy that like, you know, right. you feel like you're, you're in the absence of touch. Yeah, touch is going to be very high on your list. Right. Um, what's funny is a lot of times women acts of service ends up being high on their list, but think of that culturally women tend to take on more at home. Um, and I know there's always differences because I've definitely met wonderful men who are just rock stars as far as the co-parenting and working together well at home. But by and large, the culture represents women taking on more of the responsibility at home. So it makes sense that a woman might be like, oh yeah, acts of service, do more of that, please, please do more of that. But really you need to do all five. So, I mean, just for us to put them out there, time, yeah. touch, words of affirmation, acts of service and gifts. And so, you know, for me, I think gifts is low, but I don't think that I wouldn't want gifts. Like every time mm -hmm. I do get a gift, it's a very nice thing. But for me, it's like, oh, every now and then it would be nice to have I would be sad though, if you never got me a gift or you never, right. never saw flowers on the table, it's like, really, come on, like, why don't you ever <laughs> give me a gift? Right. And so really for me, what I try to teach people is how to give and receive in both categories and to recognize where their blocks are and receiving mm -hmm. love in those categories. Cause a lot of times there are ways, like for example, um, the words, words of affirmation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So think of why somebody might have a block there. It's self-esteem. So like if somebody has, um, if somebody feels ugly or fat or not good enough, then mm -hmm. if somebody says, oh, you look really beautiful today. What do you say in your head when you feel that way? Right. You're like, no, I don't. Nope. Not good enough. No. So mm -hmm. like, even when somebody gives you the compliment, you might reject them by mm -hmm. unintentionally simply by saying, no, I'm ugly. I'm fat, whatever, because you're rejecting yourself. Mm -hmm. So these are ways that couples are missing connections unintentionally because of mm -hmm. the way they treat themselves. Right, right. So a lot of what I look for there, you know, is just like, how are, how are people treating themselves in their head? Are they really open to receiving love or mm -hmm. are they being so mean or self-abusive that like there's an area of growth there actually? So how do you help people That's get better. past the I'm feeling fat or unattractive? 
Well, you've got to practice loving yourself, right? So like it starts with Mm self-compassion. I I mean, that's its own treatment process, but I have definitely done it. In fact, I do a lot of body dysphoria work because, you know, obviously in sex therapy, that's a, that can be a piece of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So for those, for those individuals, I work on neutral thoughts first. Mm -hmm. What's funny. So everybody talks about this positive talk idea that like, you know, be kind to yourself, be nice or be, be positive, but like, it feels like a lie. You, you end up just having a fight in your head if you try and be positive when you hate yourself, right? right. <laughs> it's not right. So it might start with neutral talk towards themselves that they practice on a regular basis. So if there's a part, I actually had a, a mom who she just didn't like her mom belly. You know how like sometimes, well, I mean, any of you moms listening, right? When right. We have a baby. We have, I have my two baby. baby belly. I talk about it. Yep. Yeah, everybody has a baby belly and how you treat yourself around that baby belly impacts your ability to be touched there, to be mm-hmm. sexual with that part of your body, right? And so I, for her, I spent a lot of time just having her neutrally talk to herself. So just neutrally describe it. Every, like she was so angry about it, she couldn't even look at it in the mirror. And so mm-hmm. we would practice by, I, had, I couldn't let her do the mirror first. She had to start just by touching it and just describing very neutrally, okay, curve, soft, rough edge, you know, like very, very neutral things. And she had to practice mm-hmm. that for a really long time before she could eventually look at it. And then it was looking at it and saying those neutral things. So it's a type of exposure therapy, but with yeah. like real shifting in the way we talk to ourselves through that. And so she, I remember she would like, she, <laughs> so she's looking at her, her belly in the mirror. And I was like, just, just give it a chance, but remember to use the neutral talk. And she had to right. do that. Like it probably took, I don't know, honestly, it took us months of her practicing versions of that in the neutral before right. she was then able to do positive. And what's interesting is at that point, then she realized that she might have, I don't know if you've heard, you've got to have heard this as a doctor, but like sometimes the, the actual abdominal wall kind of separates a little bit, mm-hmm. right? And they need yep. physical therapy. Mm-hmm. And so as we started our work together, that's what we found out is that actually she needed to go see a physical uh, therapist to do some work, but because she had such anger and hatred towards right. this part of her body, you couldn't imagine forever going to see a physical therapist. She can't even touch it or look at it. Right. And so then, um, as we continued, it moved into, we were working in it, but she was in a mental space where she could be kind enough to herself to mm-hmm. do the work for the abdomen. And then mm-hmm. she was making changes. So like there were changes made. She did some exercises, um, but it was a complete 180 after she had worked on some of this internal messaging. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a big part of my job too, that like, like really looking at how people treat themselves because you can't yeah. make change if you're unkind or abusive towards yourself in these ways right. it describes. Like you just right. avoid, because how can you sit in that shame, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that happens more than we realize. Oh, yeah, 100%. We are just soaked in shame culture. (laughs) Right, right. And so self-critical. You know, I always say we're our own worst critic. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Well, um, I know you wrote a book about um, like premarital counseling. So tell me a little bit about that. What do you tell couples how to, you know, make this work long term so they don't end up as your clients a couple of years down the road? Yeah. Well, so I, I have a, a, about a lesson plan of like six or eight things that we go over. And of course it can be individualized per couple. So if people are just doing the basic ones, then we talk about communication, just things for having healthy conflict. 
we'll also discuss things about like what are basic needs in a relationship first for you as an individual to take care of yourself but then you as a team working on things as a couple um, and one way I describe this is with piles like I, I always say I'm a very visual person so I imagine this field of piles of things you know it might just be dirt which I don't think we need dirt but whatever that's my visual for today right <laughs> and so like in marriage and in relationships if you if you think of it as this field of different piles you need to be tending to that you want you need to keep them stocked essentially you can't balance it all like the idea of like oh just like have balance in life is not real like we have so much stuff we have to do that you're gonna some of those piles are gonna start depleting and so what I try to create with a couple is an idea of what those piles represent in your life and the idea that like, okay, let's keep an eye on all of these, right? So, okay, maybe we worked a little bit more over here on this section of things on the relationship, but like, oh, this pile is getting depleted. How do we work over here? So examples of those piles could be um, co-parenting as a team. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be our finances, making sure we're saving and investing or um, we're paying off debts that we haven't, we've been storing for a while, or we're at least on the same page about how we want money to be. Another pile can be, have we been on date nights and romance? Have we been doing just basic romance um, or relationship maintenance? And so that, that's one of the piles. And another pile is just like friendship, feeling connected and close. Have we even spent time together or laughed together? Or are we just passing ships in the night, you know? Um, and so we just basically go through a variety of the different needs that people have to keep a relationship strong and my goal is to help them be on it so that like when those things deplete they have the ability to say hey i'm noticing we're struggling in this area and i need some help um, in terms of the communication styles too i'm trying to teach them the way to do that in a kind way as opposed to like there's these criticism defensiveness cycles people get into actually john gottman is the uh premier marriage researcher he's got a lot of yep, great love stuff him. there and he talks a lot about criticism defensiveness stonewalling and contempt mm -hmm. and so i'm teaching them about those those are basically the things that are gonna start people's the ends to people's marriages essentially right. if they don't stay on top of that and that doesn't mean people don't get critical or defensive at some time. So I don't want everybody to think you're all getting a divorce right. simply because you're doing these, but chronic use of them and not yeah. developing healthy conflict styles really does lead to divorces. Yeah. So that's part of what I'm working on in terms of communication with couples is how do you talk to each other in a way that's respectful, kind? How do you step away when you're emotionally dysregulated? Mm -hmm. um, so that you're not behaving that way on a chronic basis. And that right. can be a piece of it too. Like sometimes people, it's interesting. So when you think of emotion regulation from childhood to adulthood, we're supposed to learn to do that. We're supposed to learn how to like, okay, think before you act, slow things down. Um, actually, it's funny. I watched this Sesame Street show with my kiddo and a cookie monster when I was a kid um, he, you know, he's this kind of spazzy guy who gets really emotional, but now, now in my child's generation, he's got ADHD and so they're oh. teaching him social skills. So like, it's just funny. So they teach him stop, think, right. then act. Right. But like my couples that are getting married, some of them haven't learned some of those skills. Mm -hmm. Some of them yeah. don't stop and think before right. they act. And so that might be one of the things we're learning is how do you 
slow down before you mm-hmm. act on your emotions. Yeah. Um, and then the third piece that I always focus on is how do people have a good sex life long-term? Because mm-hmm. if you focus on that in premarital counseling, I mean, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to say about John Gottman, who I also highly recommend. Um, and he has, you know, what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I saw a YouTube video and I thought it was so informative and I made my family watch it. So he, he couches it in the realm of couples, but no, it's just how you treat people in general. So I really wanted my kids to watch it and my husband watch it. Um, But since we're talking about John Gottman, will you explain what those mean? Like the criticism contempt, like just for people who might not know or be familiar with it. Absolutely. Cause they're very important to change. So criticism is when, it's when you offer feedback in a really hurtful way. Um, So like, we have to be able to give each other feedback. We have to be able to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm bothered with this. Now I'm putting that in the way that's that healthy way. So using eye language, um, saying I'm struggling or I could use a little help asking instead of demanding. So when you're putting it on the more demanding side, that's on the criticism side. Um, even the difference of, is it a global criticism of somebody versus a in the moment crit- or criticism or feedback? I've, he says complaints versus criticisms. I like using feedback because I go, I trip up over the seas. Right, right. <laughs> so like you can offer feedback by saying, Hey, can you help me out with the dishes tonight? I, I really could use your help. As opposed to if you're doing a global criticism, you're saying you're just a lazy person. You never mm-hmm. do the dishes. You never, even that, that's absolute and global, right? Right, so right. Criticism sound like you overall are a failure to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that, why that we might... don't respond well, right? Right, and we get defensive. Um, defensiveness is the second of the horsemen of the apocalypse. I think it's so silly because it's a very like Christian rapture reference and that's not yeah. like global. So whenever I have clients that are not Christian, I'm like, I understand how this sounds. Just go with it. But like, right, right. It doesn't bother me. And I'm not Christian because I feel like it just hits home. Like it just, it resonates like the apocalypse. If you, you know, are using the, if you're, if your marriage has these four things, you might not last. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be the apocalypse for your marriage. For for your marriage. (laughs) Well, so defensiveness, this is the thing. So like you can actually be great at the way you give feedback. But if you come with a defensiveness, it doesn't matter how somebody Mm -hmm. says something, because this goes back to how people are treating themselves. Mm -hmm. Here's an example I had just recently. There was this uh, wife who says to her husband, hey, could you please turn off the light? Like, that's all she said. So you hear it. I'm like, "Eh, sounds fine. But he has a defensiveness issue that we're working on, right? So he read into that and hit what the message he told himself is, Oh, she's trying to, she's trying to have sex with me right now. And I can't, I need to leave. Why is she bothering me right now? Like she knows I need to leave, right? Like that was all his messaging, all his branding. And as a result, he responds like, why can't you do it yourself? That's a defensive response. And it comes from how you're talking in here. Um, So when I'm helping people work on defensiveness, the big thing I am working on is how compassionate are you to you first? Mm -hmm. And then how are you also cultivating compassion towards your partner? Because when a partner says, hey, can you help me with something? Your ability to be like, yeah, I can help out, of course, and put your brain in more of a compassion mind as opposed to a, why can't you do it yourself, which is very defensive or like with the dishes thing, right? So earlier I mentioned, hey, could you please help me with the dishes right now? If you're a deep, if you're in your defensive response, you might say, 
well, you did the, di- I did the dishes yesterday, you know, as a, right. like, so the messaging internally might sound like, um, is this person saying I'm lazy? Am I not good enough? Like, did right. I forget this? As opposed to if you're in compassion mind, it sounds like, how can I help right now? My partner is asking for help mm-hmm. or a bid for connection, by the way. That's another mm-hmm. thing. Yep. I like that. Talks about. Yes. Tell us what a bid for connection is. A bid for, well, he calls them bids for connection or affection. Sometimes people just want to feel like you care or you're interested Mm -hmm. in them, right? So um, the story he tells in one of the articles I'll send is like, you're looking out the window and you're like, oh, look, there's this really cool bird. And you say Mm -hmm. that to your partner, that's a bid for affection or connection. And there are ways that couples either accept those bids or reject them. Right. Mm-hmm. So like if he, if you as a partner go and look at the bird and be like, yeah, that is a really interesting bird. That's kind of cool. Then you've accepted that bid. And that's a feeling of like, I love you. That's so sweet. Right. But that same interaction, people are sometimes rejecting them by saying, why are you talking to me about bird? Or I don't have time. Yeah. Or they just completely ignore them. Or just don't respond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which that stonewalling, by the way. Yeah. Stonewalling. <laughs> yes. Or they just don't respond. Yeah, well, going back to the other question, so stonewalling is where people just shut down, um, and this can happen in conflict, but it can also happen in between conflict, right? Like, so say a couple's had a rough argument, and they just don't acknowledge each other. Think of, like, your silent treatments. Yeah, Stonewalling is very harmful in a relationship, mm-hmm. and I would say that it's more of, it's more of what happens in the longer term when you have that criticism defensive cycle where you just don't feel heard. Uh, mm-hmm. like it, it becomes kind of a coping mechanism because it's like mm-hmm. if anything I say or do right now is just going to cause more harm so they avoid or kind of ignore each other right going into the status quo right where you are you pretend everything's okay and you just keep passing in the night but you deeply feel underneath that it's not mm-hmm. okay right, right. it's a painful yeah. place and then the last one's contempt by the way yep. contempt is basically like you don't you don't even care anymore. Like it's like contempt, hear the word. It says hatred, right? Mm-hmm. But like when you, when you get to this place, basically you have loud resentments in your relationship to fester to the point that you don't even care. You're just like, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you, and you, the reason you're not acknowledging them is because you just don't give a shit anymore. Right. And that's why, I mean, you can hear why these would be causes of divorce, right? Like yeah. you don't even acknowledge each other anymore. Right. Can't. But there are some ways people do this, even even when they're not at divorce's door, that are important for us to like pay attention to and address. Like what? Like how do well, they do? Like um, the defensiveness is one I've been working on a lot with couples. Like because every every time people get into that defensive block, that is where we start creating resentment towards our partner when we feel like we haven't resolved or felt acknowledged. What can you do with that energy? Well, the only thing mm-hmm. to do is to suck it down mm-hmm. and hold on to it. And some people, like there are these interesting pivot moments in relationships that people describe to me where they have tried to talk to their partner. They've tried to talk to them about this and this, and they just never get to it. And they'll say, at that point, I just made a decision that I could never come to them about this anymore. That's right. a pivot point. And that's right. when somebody has taken a resentment and it's just grown a little seed of roots and it is growing into something that will long-term be the end of their marriage. So like, what's interesting to me about resentment is there is a choice. There is a choice point, a pivot point where people basically decide this isn't going to get better. I can't, I'm not going to be able to do it. And when I, I only know these cause I do, I spend a lot of time talking to people. Right. So anytime you're in a marriage and you find yourself in one of those pivot points, 
those are points where people need to talk. Those are people when times when it's like, oh, I'm about, I'm about to develop a resentment here that like, this is going to change me. If you know you're, you're facing one of those, those are the times to come to therapy. Those are the times to talk to your partner and be like, I just realized that like, I'm about to, like, I'm about to shift here and I, mm-hmm. I need us to do something or, or this is going to be, this is going to be bad, you know? And it's interesting because when couples do that, like they'll say that they're like, I realized that I was starting to build a resentment towards right. you. Right. I love when people come in there because they still care enough to do something about right. it. Right. That's the point to get them at. Definitely. Yeah. You want people actively aware of when they're building resentments because otherwise right. they just passively do it until they get to contempt and then divorce. Yeah. I, I would only imagine or could only imagine that people's resentments build and build and build without showing up for therapy. Yeah. And so once you get a couple with all these longstanding resentments, how do you change their feelings about those resentments? Like, how do you help people get past that? Well, I'll be honest with you, Dr. Becky, there <laughs> are, there is a certain point where I can't, and right, I am right. just ushering people into divorce. Now I'm not saying that's all my couples. Like I said, the, sure. when people are, when they're in that first pivot point, or even the second one where they're realizing, wow, I'm building resentment and I don't want that those are the ones that I do my best work with in therapy Mm -hmm. where they're like, no, we're not going to continue like this. Um, But there is a portion of my practice, which is where people have already kind of crossed a line. And I I call it like drawing a line in the sand, right? Like there's, there's people who dance around that line for years, but once people have crossed it, I can't bring them back. And that's not something I can control. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes it's me helping them come to terms with the fact they've already, they've already lost the marriage. So right. to be fair, those are the most painful ones I do. And I have to, I have to do a lot of self-care to remind myself that I'm not like responsible for that because a big part right. of my practice is wanting to help people fix it. Right. Right. I, right. I mean, the average couple is waiting seven years after that their resentments are building before they even come get help and therapy. And so that's, that's not my responsibility and that's not my fault. It's right. Right. Theirs for not doing something about it. Right. And I think that's a really great skill to have as a clinician or provider um, to be able to realize that, you know, because I I sort of feel like we all want to help people. Right. That's why we're doing what we're doing. We want them to get better. We want them to succeed. But that's that won't happen with every client or with every patient. So to say that's okay, I did my best. I think that's a really good skill to have. Yeah, it's definitely one I've had to pick up well during this pandemic because no, like for one thing that was really cool is the pandemic just shined light on everything we didn't like, like everything that you were unhappy with. And so it created a speed at which people were like, no, I'm not going to live in this marriage anymore. I can't do this. Or if they were happy, they were like, you know, we're moving in together. We're getting married. Or like, I I don't want another year to go by without us finally having our kid. It's it's interesting how it like, it just drove people in a very fast way. So I've had to, I've had to pick up some some skills that I was yeah. not prepared for in this pandemic. <laughs> you're, you're, you know, finding the good in the bad. So that's, that's good. Yeah. yeah it's been so, fun. <laughs> I did want to ask you one more thing. Um, and when looking at your website, um, I love this about your website, about how you call out people on their bullshit. So I want you to elaborate on that because sometimes, you know, I, I can only imagine like with couples counseling, you might need to call somebody out on their bullshit. So tell me how you do that. 
Well, so I, I mean, you've probably heard just kind of listening into my interview. I just kind of put stuff out very, I mean, the best way to say it is I just don't have a very, very good filter. And I haven't throughout most of my life. I, my joke is that um, I will always be working on tact, but I will fail at it repeatedly because I just, I just don't. Um, that right. might be why I'm in the field that I'm in, right? Because I'm like, I should learn about this tech thing. And so, you know, I think communication skills have come as a result of my own insecurity around tact for sure. But what it looks like is, you know, I, I'm not going to let couples just sit and fight each other. It's, it's a waste of their time and money. And I don't, I don't want people to do that. So like, if people are just fighting, I'm going to stop them. I might cut them. Um, I might split them up and just talk to each of them individually. Um, I ask for permission if, if I notice an area of growth, like with a couple, if they we're working on defensiveness, for example, I might say, okay, do I have some permission to kind of call you guys out as we go forward? If I see some defensiveness and so right. doing that, then I love it. It gives me like a pass basically. Cause then I'll be right. like, Hey, you know, that's one of those moments where you're being defensive. Can I you know, explain to you why I always ask that's mm -hmm. one, that's a tact thing I have learned is right. if you just do it. Then sometimes you'll get that defensiveness towards you. Right. Yes. But yes. if I ask and I've already taught the skill, then I can point it out and be like, see how this is? Can you hear it? Can you hear it in yourself? Right. And so that'll be how I'll do it. But then sometimes I get to a point of like trust enough with a couple that I don't have to do as much of those tactful things because they can just take it. Mm -hmm. But I really pay attention now because I used to like, I don't, I do call people out on their bullshit. And I used to not always think about some of those tactics based on like, you know, just because I didn't have a filter. <laughs> and so I would say, oh, you're doing it now. Or like, I remember, actually, I'll give you a good story. Sure. So when I was working with uh, this family, um, it was, this is back when I used to work with kids long ago. I don't anymore. But I remember the kid was tantruming and throwing, like, he was just going crazy, right? And so I just like, and the mom was trying to fix it and I just jumped in and fixed it for her. So I didn't ask her, I usurped her authority. Like I just, and I got him down. Like we were like at the end, we were relaxed, we were good, but guess who was fuming? <laughs> mom oh. was pissed as yeah. Right. And it's because I didn't want to ask for permission. Um, two, I made her look like a fool, not intentionally, just right, because she right. was already struggling. So for me to just jump in and swoop, like I can do this. Right. Um, so like, those are examples of like, I have to build trust with couples before I can just call them out or just take mm -hmm. over things. And actually that's another thing I've shifted is I'm not taking things over anymore. I'm really mm -hmm. trying to coach people to take it over and take it on themselves. Right. Um, but basically that's part of the process of calling people out on their bullshit is building some trust so that they feel safe with me basically doing it. Mm -hmm. So it's not just me being an asshole like Dr. <laughs> no, I can't imagine that. But it's, it's a tact, I'm a tactful bullshit caller. <laughs> right, right. So did that come into play when you're with couples and maybe one partner is contributing more to the issues? Do you yeah. call them out on their bullshit? Absolutely. I just did it yesterday. Um, you know, and I, with that one, I'll just say, you know, I like I call, we call it, this is a systemic treatment process, but we call it... Um, making the covert overt. So the things, mm -hmm. the processes or the interactions in the room that you see are, are relevant, right? So they're already feeling those things. So I will call them out. And actually there was a, a session recently where the woman like would be 
taking all this ownership. I send this homework between sessions and she's read and she's like, I've been trying this. And I'll ask him, I said, Hey, are you noticing that she's trying to work on it? And he'll be like, yeah, I've definitely seen her shift. She's trying to be more positive. And I said, okay, well, so how are you working on it? And he said, I probably am not working as much, you know? And so I probably need to put a little more effort. So he took a little ownership. Mm -hmm. um, however, this was about fourth session. And in each of the sessions, he's repeatedly said that where it's like, I probably should. So he's at right. least doing the tongue in cheek ownership thing to make me right. feel good, to maybe make her and me feel good, so to speak, but he's not actually doing anything. So when he did that and it was fourth session, I basically called him out and said, you know, it's interesting because we've done this four times now. And every time that I ask you guys those questions, she'll say, I'm doing this or I'm trying to do this. And you say that, what you just said. And you, so that there's a dynamic going on where she's doing all this work and you're not really doing any of the work. What's going on there? So then I, I call it out, but then I right. ask him about it. And he's like, yeah, it's probably true. And of course, then that gave wife a chance to be like, yeah, it's this. And I felt that I just said that to him yesterday. And I'm like, shh. <laughs> yeah, Hold they, on. they go into their you know like they go into their fight and I'm like no like just let him talk let's see what's going on but right. in that way then he kind of recognized I mean well this is the thing so sometimes people can recognize it and realize they need to work and other times mm -hmm. that's part of the dynamic right that mm -hmm. like he's just not gonna and so I also pointed out because I want her to see it's unhealthy if he doesn't make some changes mm -hmm. right so there's always like 50 reasons <laughs> right right so why do you think he wasn't making any changes I mean I think in this case he doesn't trust me yet as a therapist and he mm -hmm. doesn't trust the process um mm -hmm. which is why we have to talk about it right right but it it's still you know we got to unfold we got to see what yeah. happens right because some people right. are just slow to warm in therapy too mm -hmm. and then other times there need to be crisis points that like basically i call them explosions sometimes mm -hmm. things have to blow up in your face a few times before you really get it like there are people who learn through modeling and then there's others that are trial by fire learners and he might be one mm -hmm. of those types so okay. he might need a couple explosions <laughs> <laughs> well is there anything else you wanted to add that you want the listeners to know about? Yeah, I mean, oh, well, I mean, of course, check out the website at www.therapistinstlouis.com. But like, yeah, just see, I don't know. I mean, as so far as like a, a good brand message or something, I just, I just hope you all get help when you need it because really life's too short to stay in an unhappy marriage. <laughs> right, right. I absolutely agree. And I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, that couples wait too long to get into marriage counseling. And there's so much benefit to be had in marriage counseling that, and having somebody, a non-judgmental kind of mediator to help you, to help call out your bullshit, right? <laughs> you don't know your bullshit, your bullshit until somebody exactly. you. <laughs> and get you back on the right path. And, you know, having a, a marriage counselor who understands the sex part of it too, because like, you know, like we said, you can't separate the two. Um, so I think you've got an amazing, unique set of awesome skills. And I just sent somebody to you actually. So well, thank you. I appreciate yeah, you for having me. This is very fun. Yep. It was a blast. So thank you, Angela. Thank you for listening to today's podcast of Intimacy Unmuted with special guest, Angela Skirtu. Angela is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a nationally certified sex therapist. Subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. Follow Evora Women's Health and Angela Skirtu on social media linked in the description below. 
watch the video podcast on Evora Women's Health YouTube channel. Until next time, unmute your intimacy and stay sexy.